Greetings, everybody. This is Sophia Nelson, and welcome to the One America podcast. We are rounding out Black History Month, and I wanted to have part two of our discussion on the Catalyst study about women of color and their experiences in the corporate workplace in the year not 1963 or 1983, in the year 2023. The study was frankly... um, upsetting and disappointing and I have a great guest to put it into context for us as well as to talk with us about the state of black America and black history month 2023 and the state of women of color and and what the outlook is as we head towards the 2024 election cycle Glenda Carr is amazing she is the co-founder of higher heights and is the present CEO she is someone who has dedicated her life to helping uplift black women Uh, She is one of the people engaged with Black Women Lead. It's a hashtag you see often. This is a great dialogue. Get ready. It's a good one. This is your host, Sophia Nelson, and happy Sunday. Welcome to the One America podcast. This is Black History Month, and we have a great guest today in honor of Black History Month. She's a friend. She's a dynamo. She's a great lady, and she is presently the president and CEO and co-founder of Higher Heights for America and Higher Heights Leadership Fund. Glenda C. Carr is at the center of the national movement to grow Black women's political power from the voting booth to elected office. And she has been very successful with that, by the way. She is the daughter of immigrants who instilled in her the values of civic engagement from a very young age values that she has brought forward throughout her life's work. She is the former executive director of Education Voters of New York, chief of staff to New York State Senator Kevin Parker, and campaign manager for two of Parker's successful re-election campaigns. And now she's at higher heights. Glenda, welcome, and it's great to have you here. Uh, great to be here. I look forward to the conversation. So Glenda, first question out the block is, uh, There's a lot going on in our country right now, a lot, and a lot around race, a lot around who has what rights. The Supreme Court is going to decide if affirmative action is going to still be allowed in higher education. We have fights over CRT, over what history can be taught, over what books can be read. I'm convinced the governor of Florida has lost his mind. Uh, That's a personal observation. And uh, I think that we're in a dark place when it comes to race right now. Tell us first a little bit about Higher Heights and what you do there and why your organization is so important right now at this moment in history. Yeah, I mean, a little over 10 years ago, I um, invited Kimberly Peeler Allen, who you know. Well, <laughs> and, uh, well, well. <laughs> um, to coffee, right? So kind of just coffee with a girlfriend. Uh, and it was at a time where I was trying to figure out my next steps, right? Had worked um, in government, had obviously worked um, professionally in, in, in campaigns and politics, came from a politically active family. Uh, and found myself after the 2010 election cycle, you know, without a job, which when you work in politics, sometimes elections change, <laughs> changes mm-hmm. what your job trajectory is. And, you know, it's trying to figure out my next steps. And out of that coffee with a friend, um, we both said the, the very work that we do every day, we often don't see ourselves, right? We do this work um, for the betterment of not only the nation, but particularly for our, our family 
in our community. Uh, and oftentimes we found ourselves in rooms that were mostly white and mostly male. Um, and we wrote the words higher heights down that day. Kimberly and I were like, what do we need to do in this moment? Um, we thought in 2010 being women who, you know, identify as left-leaning progressives, right? That, um, what's next after a 2010 election cycle. Um, but what we knew is that black women continue to be the building blocks to a winning coalition, but we didn't see our, ourselves um, in the halls um, that we walked. And so we started Higher Heights. We wrote the words literally um, that day, Higher Heights. We wanted to be a- aspirational. What would we do if we built a national network of black women and allies um, in an organization that uniquely centered black women's political power and leadership? Um, we didn't have the words that day, um, but what we were what we were seeking is what we built ten years later, right? Which was the political home for Black women, a place for us to be informed, engage, and to take action, and to unleash our um, political power um, to help elect and mobilize Black women. Hmm. Tell me what you're engaged in right now. Fast forward now that you have established this great organization, and I know Kim well. We were two of the first black women to work at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce back in the day in the 90s, late 90s, early 2000s, was at Kim's wedding. So good people there. Um, But what are you guys doing now as you look forward to 2024 in particular? Uh, What's on the horizon? Yep. And what I think we, you know, saw on the horizon was that, you know, this country has growing, has grown into the most politically toxic and racially divisive uh, times in, in our generation. Right. Mm-hmm. I am, you know, the great granddaughter of Carolee Dickens. Here's a woman that was born in the late 1800s. Um, you mentioned, you know, being a daughter uh, of Im- immigrants. My father uh, migrated here from Jamaica, but my, you know, maternal side of the family, I had my great grandmother, grandmother, and mother for most of my, you know, up until I was 25 years old. And so those combined three generations of lived experiences as Black women in America. Um, they dreamt bigger dreams for you and I than I think we would have had. Mm-hmm. And, and certainly, I think in three generations, my great-grandmother wouldn't want to see some of the fights that we're currently in. The rollback of all the work. Here's a woman that most of her life, you know, didn't have access to the ballot, but understood her political power and influence. My mother, right, um, understood her advocacy to ensure that her children had the you know, best education. Um, that the little white girl next to me were going to, you know, that I had a very right to have the same, um, you know, access to the same um, opportunities. And they use, I think that is the tradition of Black women, right? And I think that's what makes our, our, our leadership unique across sectors in, you know, in elected office, in corporate boardrooms, that those lived experiences of our great grandmothers, grandmothers and mothers about advocating and speaking truth to power uh, is important in this moment, um, particularly as we are fighting um, for the rollbacks that are our, our, um, those that came before us fought for. And so it is a critical time to ensure that our voices are heard, um, that our political power isn't dismissed, right? Um, we put more into this democracy than we get back. And I think mm. Black women in this moment are demand- demanding our return on our voting investment. And that's in forms of policies, um, that's in forms of um, having seats at decision-making tables and frankly, leading those decision-making tables. And that we are also gonna use our economic might um, in a way um, that ensures that we are building economically thriving and educated, healthy, safe communities. And and as we do that, 
it not only supports um, black communities, but also supports the nation as a whole. Yeah, I um, before we get into the real uh, part two of what uh, I set up the table in part one and this catalyst study about racism in the workplace relative to black women, women of color uh, and other marginalized women. And I really wanted to get a black woman's perspective on that who has led in the way you have in politics and, and now are running one of our great organizations in this country around political power. Uh, what's your thoughts on Joe Biden as we were talking about in the green room? You know, he's been a consequential president for black women. Uh, what are your thoughts going into 2024, though, whether he runs or not, and, you know, kind of talk a little bit about the vice president and your thoughts about how you think she's faring as well. So both of them, how are they doing? Yep. And so, I mean, we obviously are living in a historic, um, a historic moment for Black women's political leadership. So a little over 10 years ago, when Higher Heights was founded, Black women, the 23 million Black women in this country were underrepresented and underserved. And so we've seen significant gains since then. uh, And that is in part by the work and investment of Higher Heights and many of the organizations that have been um, founded um, during the last decade from Collective PAC and Black PAC and many of the other um, Black and um, Latino-led organizations focusing on women, uh, on um, candidates of color and women of color. And so we see a record number of Black women serving in the House of Representatives. Zero Black women continuing to serve in um, the Senate. We've only elected two, right? Mm -hmm. And we can't we, we're celebrating the gains of an ascension of a Kamala Harris to the vice presidency, but her ascension left a void in the U.S. Senate. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've seen, you know, a record number of Black women running for office across the country in state legislatures, but we still have never elected a Black woman governor. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I do believe that, you know, a Joe Biden presidency has centered um, the importance of Black voters. Um, if you look at the Democratic Party who came out of their winter meeting with changing the political calendar uh, and, 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 and having states that represent a, a, a more diverse um, voting constituency mm-hmm. going earlier in the Democratic um, um, primary process, um, that's going to forever kind of change um, what presidential elections look like. He's nominated more Black women to the federal bench, uh, including um, you know, the nomination, uh, confirmation and swearing in of the first black woman to serve on um, the Supreme Court. And mm-hmm. obviously he was very clear he was going to his running mate was going to be a woman. And then he said a black woman. Um, what's amazing about that? It wasn't just, oh, there's a black woman. It was, you know, a a list of very qualified black women mm-hmm. that came from different types of experiences from, you know, statewide elected to, you know, uh, mayors of large cities to a Kamala Harris. And so that is going to be, you know, part of his legacy. Um, so as we enter into 2024, uh, it has not been an easy road for Vice President Kamala Harris, you mm-hmm. know, ascending to be the first woman um, to sit a stone throw away, you know, steps away from the Oval Office and sitting at the intersection of who she is. I always talk about, she stands uh, in the spirit of Maya Angelou's um, poem. Um, you know, she stands as one, um, uh, oh, she stands it's as okay, one. It's she, stands as, she stands as one, but comes <laughs> as 10,000. Like the intersectionality of who she is as a woman, a woman of color, um, daughter of immigrants, um, daughter of, you know, you know, educated at historically black college, a member of our illustrious, historically Black um, Greek letter organization, um, Mm -hmm. that her experience, um, I think, threatens 
um, a, a, a population of America um, and what our American democracy will continue to look like. And it's going to continue to look more like a Kamala Harris. And mm-hmm. so as we look at the legacy of this first term and many of the historic pieces of legislation that they have um, advocated and signed in and her voice around issues, particularly around women's issues um, and her restoring our our standing in the global community with her trips abroad um, Mm -hmm. after coming off of um, a Trump presidency. Um, I certainly think she is poised to continue to be uh, an asset, not only to our country, but to a Biden-Harris 2024 ticket, if that is the case, or, you know, charting a course for her to run for um, president herself. Mm -hmm. I I think that's right. And I think that's on point. And I've written a lot about how I don't like the way I feel she's been marginalized and treated, even at the highest level, even cracking that glass ceiling right there, as you said, a heartbeat away from the presidency. Uh, But I think that they have started to utilize her in a more effective, more visible way, going to Munich, uh, you know, being clear on foreign affairs as well as immigration issues, on the economy, still trying to fight the good fight on student loans. Let's talk quickly about that before we get into the Cala study. What are your thoughts on this? You know, it looks like the student loan debt cancellation is going to be destroyed unless they can figure out some way to make it work. What are your thoughts about that? Because it really impacts the black community in a significant way and black women even more so. Yeah, I think, you know, it, it obviously there are, you know, folk that believe that it needed to go further. But the fact that you had an administration that tackled um, uh, tackled this issue head on, one, as a, from a narrative perspective of what canceling debt means for America, but particularly um, communities of color, uh, is an important, you know, uh, one beginning part about how that cancellation will continue to, to support the strength of our economy. Um, and, but we're living in such a politically toxic um, time that the, you know, the extremes of, um, you know, those that are elected um, oftentimes is, is not to the benefit of their constituency, um, but has risen to a discussion. I mean, I, you know, still have some loans lingering. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And, you know, I certainly am blessed in, you know, being able to, you know, um, pay those bills and round other bills, but knowing that those in my family, like there is someone in your family that is struggling with with student loan debt. Absolutely. Um, And that student loan debt Um, like I said, hampers the ability for people to live their full selves in this economy um, and to support this economy by rotating dollars um, to be able to live with um, a a living wage with benefits um, and not struggle with knowing where your food, um, food, shelter uh, and transportation to your job will come from. And so this country needs to grapple with not only all of the competing priorities that we have from a policy perspective, but being able to strengthen the wallets and the pocketbooks of Americans across the country, it actually doesn't have a race or agenda or socioeconomic backgrounds. Um, but because we're living in this politically toxic, racially divisive times, um, that something as simple as this, um, you know, becomes a, a political football back and forth. And so I certainly think out of all of the landmark pieces of um, legislation and policy that the Biden-Harris uh, administration has done this one certainly I think is going to be a, a, a hard um, you know mountain to climb 
in this environment. I agree. And I think it's really unfortunate. We'll have to have a whole other podcast about that when we see what happens this summer if they're not successful in the courts litigating this. But let's get into this in the last 15 minutes we have of the show. Um, And, uh, you know, this Catalyst study, for those of you who listen globally, you probably are all familiar with Catalyst. It's one of the leading women's organizations, and they do a lot of research, a lot of studies, a lot of events all around uh, women and uh, how women are faring from corporate boards and in the C-suite to academia, to industry, et cetera. But they took a deep dive, uh, Glenda, as you know, in this most recent study this month into uh, the experiences of women of color and otherwise marginalized women um, and how it impacts the workplace. Now, Uh, I'm certainly old enough in my 50s now to have lived this in real time when there was definitely nobody that looked like me in the workplace at all as a lawyer um, Mm -hmm. and uh, as a young woman coming up the ladder. And I remember when I interned in the United States Senate back in 1989, it was, I guess, my junior year of college, and I was the only black United States Senate intern. And uh, a lot of that is because you don't get paid for those internships. You didn't back then. Your parents had to be able to put you up. They got to be able to mm-hmm. afford your rent in Georgetown and uh, at the university, which is where you stayed. And you went and you worked on the hill for the entire summer. And I remember my mom had to drive down and come and get me um, and bring me home on the weekends because uh, I couldn't afford to stay there like the other kids. So. The, the things that, that I've seen in my lifetime and you've seen in yours, uh, things have changed. But this study concerned me because they're not changing as fast as I thought they would or in the way I hoped they would since I wrote my first book, Black Woman Redefined, back in 2010. And uh, here are some of the highlights from the study. 51% of women from marginalized racial and ethnic groups experience racism at work. Skin tone bias. This was interesting was a pervasive issue. And those with darker skin tones were more likely compared to lighter skin tone women of color to experience racism at work. Trans and queer women were more likely to experience racism compared to cisgender heterosexual women. And then the allyship issue and the curiosity of leaders can improve experiences for women from marginalized racial and ethnic groups, but they often don't. That means our white sisters uh, who are usually in the seats of power now, particularly in the DEI profession, et cetera, in the C-suite, they've achieved parity in many ways in some industries, many not. But you have, out of the Fortune 500, you've got 50, I think it's 53 white women CEOs or something like that of the Fortune 500. And I think you've got one or two black women. And, uh, you know, that shows you where we are. So I've thrown a lot at you, but I want to unpack this a little bit and just get your top line thoughts on what this study tells us, this catalyst study tells us about women of color and our experiences in the workplace. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> We've, you know, also shown, I think the study, you know, outlines um, information that some of us know, which is like, you know, black women are, you know, um, you know, uh, completing, you know, degrees and advanced degrees um, are entering, you know, into the workforce and into the pipeline um, across industries um, but similar to uh, politics, you know, are still underrepresented, um, that you can still often walk into a boardroom and be the only. Um, and this discussion about um, uh, skin color 
and hair. It's part of the reasons why, you know, Holly Mitchell and um, Dove are, you know, have launched this Crown Act coalition and have been state by state passing anti-hair discrimination um, pieces of legislation. The fact that um, Black women are still being characterized in our leadership, may it be in a boardroom or a city hall around our leadership being aggressive um, and ambitious, uh, which ambitious to me should not be a negative, um, but when attributed to Black women, oftentimes is a negative um, um, a negative qualifier uh, with coded language um, mm-hmm. that there's a lot of work to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there are groups across in the corporate sector. Um, it's part of the work of Higher Heights, right? The political home, trying to cre- creating spaces where Black women can gather uh, and refuel themselves to be able to go back and battle um, day-to-day, um, day-to-day, overt or covert, aggressive or passive-aggressive um, uh, environments uh, in their workplace. Mm. Well, let me ask you this. Um, you know, as an African-American woman and um, as a darker-skinned-toned woman, do you experience that? Do you find it to be true, Glenda, what they're saying about that? I certainly uh, have been, for the last 10 years, I created a space where I spend most of my time <laughs> Uh, and energy with Black women. Yeah. But I also have had a long career, right? And I've oftentimes been the only um, Black woman and the youngest Black woman in the mm-hmm. room. And so when you add in, you know, the intersection of race, gender, and age, um, the, the you remember the times where you're like, I why do. am I not invited? Why am I not sitting mm-hmm. at the table and sitting, mm-hmm. um, you know, around um, the room? Um, there are, you know, listening to interns and, um you know, young professionals just talk about, um, you know, how do they navigate those environments um, where they are not being um, included on mar- large projects. Uh, and a lot of that, I think, is continue to do mentorship um, with Black women uh, and in finding those allyships um, that will help, you know, support and sponsor and mentor uh, and ensure that you have those calling out um you know, leaders within these institutions, Mm -hmm. um, real time, which oftentimes that is the work that I think black women are looking for. You know, are you listening today and going, have you sat back and not spoken up on behalf of another black woman? You know, you're right. And I remember, um, and I wrote about this in my book, black woman redefined, you know, that one of the things that was hardest for me and made me leave big law firm practice where again, I was one of, there were two black women in the Miami office, uh, Marilyn Holyfield, who's a legend, first black woman at Holland and Knight and one of the first in the American Bar Association, uh, you know, of her generation and that 1960s generation. And then, you know, myself up in the D.C. office and I think uh, one other sister. And you would see it. I was in the government group. So I was in the government affairs lobbying group, the biggest practice in the firm. We had, of course, the American Express card privileges. We were whining and dining people on the hill. We're doing a probes and almost always I was never included when they would go out after or they would invite people to their home and the white women who were married with children or the white women who were married were always included but the single women certainly Mm. but single black women were never included and even when the white women were uh, same level as you associate or senior counsel or whatever they were mentored differently they were given different opportunities because white men see the white 
women as their daughters, particularly which, you know, there've been a lot of studies on how the workplace changed around white men when they started having daughters and they were lawyers, doctors, engineers. And they're like, well, wait a minute, I got daughters. So I want them to be treated the same. So they began to elevate and help women in the workplace, but white women. And so that leads me into what I want to spend our last moments on is how can white women do better or what aren't white women doing to be allies uh, and to help because white women are thriving. You can see it everywhere. They're thriving. They're on our everywhere. They're, they're doing well. We're, we're far behind in pay and everything. So we're lagging. Yeah. um, You know, as it relates to um, pay inequities, uh, you know, we're getting ready to enter into the season of, you know, equal pay day, right. Mm -hmm. Which, you know, depending on which year it falls between March and April of every year. And, but Mm -hmm. that is for Asian women and white women, Mm -hmm. black women and Latino women have to almost work a full year. So August, right. Right. Right? August, Mm -hmm. August or September. Um, and I, you know, that is not just black women, you know, black women who are hourly workers, there is a pay discrepancies from our hourly workers to our C-suite women. Um, and so, being able to close um, the discussion around pay inequity um, benefits all women, but particularly black women. Um, And so that being said, you know, our counterparts should see us as true partners. Mm -hmm. Um, I see, certainly think we live in a time where it's people feel scarcity, right? That women believe, I always talk about imagining um, we build how big the table is versus this notion of squeezing a chair into the Mm -hmm. table. Mm -hmm. And so if you believe in the abundancy that you can expand the amount of voices around a a decision-making table, then you helping another woman or a black woman isn't in sacrifice of your ability to, to continue to rise and lead as a leader. Mm -hmm. Um, And that we have to, to shift in our mind that when we all have opportunities, um, that we can all strengthen. I think we are still living in a time where it's like, well, if, if I help her, then I'm not going to get that promotion yep. or yep. I'm not going to get that project. Yeah. Uh, that is great. Uh, that collaboration versus that competition, ladies, uh, we can help each other. We can lift as we climb. Uh, Glenda, I'm going to wrap with uh, this. Um, I want to ask you a question, but first, before I do that, where can people follow you on social media and find out more about higher heights? Yeah, I am excited about the opportunities for Black women across this country in um, our democracy from voters to elected office. And so please follow um, me at Glenda Carr. So at Glenda Carr across all platforms, G-L-Y-N-D-A-C-A-R-R and higherheightsforamerica.org. If you want to learn more about um, the Black women that are leading across this country as attorney generals and um, uh, mayors of large major cities or the issues that Black women are fighting um, for around policy, um, Higher Heights is your political home. Yeah, and I uh, thank you for that. I want to give a shout out to the Commonwealth of Virginia. We elected our first Black mm-hmm. Congresswoman, Jennifer McClellan, one of our state senators, was elected in a special election on Tuesday to fill the seat of the late Congressman Don McEachin here down in the Tidewater uh, area in Virginia 4. So we finally put a Black woman in the House as well. I'm going to end with this question. It's a big one, but I'm going to need you to do it in three minutes, and I know you can. Mm -hmm. Uh, What is the state of Black America 2023 during Black History Month 2023? What's the state of Black America? 
Black America is coming out of a pandemic um, that attacked our bodies, our minds, our spirits, our wallets, our house, our family. Uh, and so our community you know, was in crises before the pandemic and we are coming out resolved, but still, you know, struggling uh, uh, and in need of uh, connectivity among our community, but also un uniquely understanding our political power in this moment. Um, and that the very policies that have happened from George Floyd to the pandemic, um, to, the, to many of the decisions that are, uh, you know, coming out of the Supreme Court, I think we're very clear about our voices needing to be um, um, at decision-making tables. And those decision-making tables are corporate decision-making tables, civic organizations, community organizations, religious organizations, um, from our city halls to the White House. I tell you what, Glenda, you nailed it. I knew you would. Um, I want to have you back because I want to get into the assault. Um, and we can extend a few more minutes, and I want to kind of pick your brain a little on this. There's an assault on AP courses of African-American studies in Florida. It looks like my governor here in Virginia is about to do the same thing. Um, I think that the CRT was the first shot across the bow. In a few moments, what what's happening? Why is there this... Uh, it's like we're in a second reconstruction Jim Crow, like, or a third one rather, where, where people are white America. It looks like it's in the South mostly, but there is a real pushback against even learning about Dr. King or Barack Obama is the first black president. What the hell is happening? Yeah, the, the idea of revisionist history is not going to change that our fabric of our nation is changing. The demographics are changing and there are a, a population uh, of everyday, our neighbors to governors across this country that believe that if you, if you revise and change history, that the outcome of this country being a, a, a what should be a country that is open to all um, and that the face of leadership is changing, that there are, I always say that there are um, and this is my opinion, <laughs> you know, white men, like, is this how dinosaurs felt at the brink <laughs> of extinction? And there are leaders that are mostly male and mostly white yep. that I believe feel that they're at the, that their leadership is at the brink of extinction and that, that CRT and many of, of, um, the policies and the rhetoric and, you know, the, the rallies in um, January 6th are a byproduct of them fighting for the, what they believe is the soul of what leadership should look like. And leadership now looks like a Kamala Harris, a Katanji Brown Jackson. Mm. You know, it's not only the hue, right? Katanji Brown Jackson is a, you know, beautifully dark-skinned woman who wears her hair in natural locks. Yep. And the vice president is a very fair skinned, beautiful black woman with straight hair. Right. So it's it's a it's a contrast, isn't it? How yep. we have both ends of the spectrum. Uh, and they're threatened by either. The yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, you know what I find interesting about what you said? Not only is it true about white men and how they feel, because they'll tell you if you listen. Um, the, the irony is they're ridiculous because in the year 2023, 
Newsrooms are still 90% run by white men, and the other 10% are white women. Academia, most college presidents are overwhelmingly white men. Some white women, fewer people of color unless they're HBCUs, right? Mm -hmm. I could go through every industry, tech, overwhelmingly white and male. I could go through entertainment, which has color in its talent, but not at the top. Not a mm -hmm. whole lot. You got a few sisters like Perlina, NBC, and my girl Karen over at Warner. And we can pick out a few. But the reality is, fellas, you still run everything. You still overwhelmingly run 90% of every industry we have in this country. And they're threatened yeah. by a woman who is, because we've had to be, more qualified. Yep. You know, more educated, coming from more lived experience. Yep. That's real. Than, and our, so, than our male counterparts. We'll have to talk about that. That's a whole three shows there. <laughs> <laughs> but Glenda, this has been amazing. And I knew you would be. And as we get, um, you know, closer to, we start looking at 2024 and we find out who's running and we see what President Biden's going to decide because he still has not definitively said he's running. He's keeping us waiting. So, um, and we're going to have you back again and again, because I think you're an important voice and, I love what you do. And thank you for having me on your platform many times. You have a great organization, great sisters. I love you guys. And uh, just thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you for continuing to engage with us. She's been one of our most exciting um, trainers in our training programs. Uh, and we look forward for you to continue to come back uh, and be part of the community and uh, to share your, your lived experience and your insight. Thank you so much. God bless. Take care.